Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. I am so glad that you could join me this morning. Later on, I will be talking with actor Tim Matheson about his very interesting career that started when he was a kid actor. But my first guest is Nevada Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison, whose run is coming to a close very soon. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the program once again. I've known for a while, and and you made it official a while ago, that you would not be seeking re-election bid for Lieutenant Governor in 2018. What is your thinking there? Well, I think that you have to, when you run for public office, at least in my experience, Jim, uh, ensure that, uh, you know, the planets are all aligned. And the planets for me uh, are my, you know, my personal planet, my personal life, uh, my family life, uh, my professional life, uh, and then uh, my political life and really even the political opportunities in the political landscape. So, you know, you get, you get all those planets aligned, and then for me that's when it makes sense to run uh, for office. And, and right now I've got a lot going on within my uh, – large and growing uh, family and my large and growing law practice and uh, really feel like it's uh, time for me to give someone else an opportunity to serve and maybe look at something else in the future. Yeah, because after lieutenant governor, the natural progression would have been to run for governor? Yeah, I think governor or, you know, maybe take a look at a U.S. Senate uh, race or something like that. Uh, And uh, that may be something, you know, in the future. But uh, right now in this cycle, planets aren't aligned for that. So I'll I'll, uh, let somebody else step in and then evaluate later. Governor Sandoval recruited you to run for lieutenant governor. And at the time, what did he say to you? What was his sales pitch? Well, he wanted to put together a a good, solid team for Nevada. And uh, that was back in 2014. We had just come off. Matter of fact, actually, when we spoke back in 2013, when we had just come off of the legislative session and he was getting ready and planning out his reelection bid, and he wanted to put together uh, a team that uh, he thought would be uh, members of a strong constitutional officer slate uh, and also those who could uh, work with him and he could uh, rely on. And so he, he uh, graciously asked me to join him. And although in Nevada we don't run on the same ticket, uh, technically – he said that uh, we'd run together and he'd support me and I'd support him and we would be a team on on the ticket even though we didn't run it you know run together uh, voters can decide who they're going to vote for for each of those offices but it's been a an honor and a thrill for me and I just uh, think the world of Brian Sandoval I publicly expressed my sentiments uh at the last board of economic development uh, at the, at that meeting and and just uh really told uh told Nevada how fortunate we have been to have Uh, Governor Sandoval to helm. I get a lot of the news that goes on in several different states. It's amazing to me how you and Governor Sandoval have put Nevadans above politics, and that's not something you see in in many states these days. Well, I think that um, the governor really sets the tone for for the entire state, and he's made very clear that you know when he gets up in the morning. Jim, his first question isn't, you know, what's best for Brian Sandoval or what's best for, um, you know, necessarily the Republicans or the Democrats or anybody else. He he wants to know what's best for Nevadans. And I really, really believe that. I know some people say that sort of in a cliche way and, you know, sort of in a flippant way or maybe just in general they say that. I, I really uh, can tell people that 
that's what the governor's focus is. When he gets up in the morning, his question on his mind is, uh, what's best for Nevadans? And, and he intends to do what's best for Nevadans. And, you know, as a result, he's had to pay, you know, the price uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, he's been rewarded in a lot of ways. But uh, at the end of the day, he just is going to make sure that Nevadans are cared for and their interests are pursued by their governor. Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison joins me. Uh, current Senate Minority Leader Michael Roberson, also an attorney, may have his eyes on your seat. Uh, does that appear to be the case? Yeah, so Michael Roberson will be running against uh, Kate Marshall, who is the former <clears throat> state treasurer and will be the Democratic uh, nominee for uh, lieutenant governor. And so it'll it'll be, at least as far as the major parties are concerned, uh, between those two come November. You mentioned it earlier, all of your kids are either going to college, uh, making a living, raising their own families. What does it feel like to be empty nesters? <laughs> well, I've got I've to continue to pay for them. Three of them are in college. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an ongoing, uh, that's an ongoing opportunity to engage fully with my children. Uh, and the other three, uh, the other three are, are out of, uh, are out of college and, uh, married and have children. And we were blessed to have our seventh grandchild, Jim, on the way. It's still a very much a full house. Uh, and lots going on in the Hutchison home, but we just don't have uh, all of them living with us right now. But they keep coming back, and we keep uh, we, <laughs> right. we keep we keep enjoying all those opportunities. I I know you know how that is because your boys are out of the house, but they keep right. coming back as well. As for some of the issues coming up, you, and I saw that you had posted on your Facebook page uh, recently, Nevada is a wonderful place to live and work at the Nevada Department of Transportation board meeting. We learned that more than 1 million new residents are expected to move yeah. to Nevada by 2040. It's not that far off. Does that give you a sense of optimism? Well, I think that growth is <clears throat> is always what you're after, uh, whether it's your own personal life, it's your professional life, uh, whether you're trying to ensure that uh, state government is doing its job or the national government is uh, pursuing the best interests of, uh, of the country. I think growth is always a sign of life and, uh, and, 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 and prosperous circumstances. So, yes, I think it's, uh, it's an optimistic sign. It shows that uh, Nevada and Las Vegas in particular is going to be booming um, and growing. You know, there may, there may be some up and down, Jim, but uh, Vegas and Nevada have always been, to use the uh, local vernacular, good bets, and you want to uh, stay here and be here and be involved in that growth. So I'm very optimistic. 2040, so what are we looking at, do you think? I mean, this is just speculating, but as far as how much water we'll have at that point right. and green energy and all those things. Yeah, and that's, and, and that's always the number one um, item on people's list when they hear that kind of growth. They look at where we live in the desert and <clears throat> we are under uh, water shortages now. And so there's going to have to be improvements made to technology, and there's going to have to be additional sources of water found. But I have every confidence that that's exactly what will happen. You know, we've heard these um, challenges, these um, sometimes um, pessimistic views that, well, we just, you know, we can't grow anymore because we still have any water. But every time we hear that, Vegas continues to grow, Nevada continues to grow, and we continue to find the water. And, and a lot of that has to do with, um, with, imp with improvements in technology, including conservation efforts. You know, we are one of the most conservation effective communities in the, in, in the country when it comes to water. And we have to be because we're in the desert. But, um, you know, we learn an awful lot. We have, uh, 
specific uh, organizations and uh, Nevada institutions that are just focused on water production and water efficiency. Technology has developed a lot, and so I'm confident we're going to continue to have the water that we need to have uh, and to grow uh, the way that we need to grow to give these opportunities to Nevadans who live here. Speaking of progress, and especially when it comes to the tourism side of Vegas, how important is that Vegas to Los Angeles rail project, oh. which was recently sold, which is great. Uh, the first leg, I guess, will be completed by 2022. Yeah, you know, you know uh, I remember one time I was with a lawyer friend of mine who who said, uh, you know, given Las Vegas' dependency on Southern uh, California, we ought to be out there widening I-15 with spoons and shovels ourselves right. if necessary because of that corridor. And it's just, it's so critical. So anything that we can do, whether it's improving I-15 and uh, cutting down the congestion, widening, uh, improving I-15, or uh, alternative uh, sources of transportation, um, like the uh, like the bullet train, or uh, you know, better flights and more often, and and, uh, and 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 less expensive. All of those things contribute to uh, Las Vegas continuing to thrive because Southern California is uh, is one of the most important markets for us. California in general just doesn't seem to have the money. Are you confident that this thing will actually get going between here and there? <laughs> you know what? I I've just I've just been here long enough, uh, Jim, and you've been here long enough to know all all of those projects that have been promised over the years. And remember, I me mean, Harry Reid was really behind it for a long time, and at the time he was majority leader of the United States Senate, and right. and we still weren't able we, we still weren't able to get it done even with uh, Senator Reid's. Uh, backing, so no, I'm not confident it's going to happen. I right. would, uh, I would love to see it happen, and I fully support its efforts to to come to fruition. Um, but uh, it's going to take a lot more time and support than it currently has uh, in order to make that happen. And part of that is just uh, logistics and the distance and and uh, and the demand and uh, all those kind of things that got to come to come into play. But I really think that it would be in Nevada's best interest to spend some resources and energy on that project. Yeah, because if it doesn't, you and I should start paying for some real estate in Victorville, I guess. Huh? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, you know, and you, and you just saw you just saw the uh, you know the we just heard now the sort of revitalization and renewal of discussions on the new on, on that uh, the new airport that uh, people are now starting to look at again uh, just outside right. of Vegas, and, 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 and so you know you're, you're just going to see I think that. Um, growth continue to head south, and it just makes sense for us to have uh, as many connectors there as we can. Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison is with me. You're heavily involved in the transportation issues. I recently spoke to Review Journal business columnist Rick Falata, who talked about the complicated parking situation for the Raider Stadium. Four different spots. He, and I'm sure you would agree, thinks that it's an ongoing situation. It's fluid in that they'll keep adding things on to this. They will, yeah. And, you know, what, what we did with the, at the Board of Transportation maybe 18 months ago or so, Jim, was we voted and approved the actual um, uh, connectors to I-15 and the stadium with the flyover and with the accessibility off of I-15 there to try to make that as smooth as possible. But um, it's a big, big challenge. That's a big stadium, and there's a lot of people who are going to be trying to park at the same time and get out at the same time. And I do think it'll involve both, uh, multiple venues. There'll be some shuttling that will have to take place. And uh, I think that's right. It's a fluid process. But 
but the, the state of Nevada is fully behind that project. As you well know, the legislature has committed tax revenue and uh, funding, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to find solutions to those transportation issues there. As far as mass transit in general, Southern Nevada, light rail is in the discussion, the monorail, and more. What do you see is probably coming up first out of that group? I think you're going to have to see, and I think you will see uh, a connector uh, to the airport, and you're going to see the expansion of the monorail, or you'll see additional light railing down Las Vegas Boulevard to McCarran. I think that's I think that's the priority for for most of the transportation experts and uh, and the municipalities uh, that are impacted by that traffic coming out of McCarran. I know that um, that the Regional Transportation Commission (RTC) uh, has plans and is looking closely at uh, really bringing that online uh, fairly quickly. Any estimate as to how many jobs the stadium project will create once it is up and running? I know we've had a ton of uh, construction jobs already. Right, right, right. My recollection, Jim, is uh, it's about six thousand permanent jobs that will be created by that stadium, and then the ancillary businesses that will support the stadium and uh, and the uh, activities and events that go on around there, including more than just the Raiders. And that's a that's going to be a, a world-class facility for a lot of other venue sites. Uh, you know, all the NCAA football stuff you could get in there, and professional soccer and monster truck rallies, all that kind of stuff that go right. uh, on those big stadiums. You know, there's going to be a lot of support system within uh, within that within that stadium environment. And so it's about, I think it's about 6,000 jobs is, is, my, is what I recall the last report to be. As the population grows, it's just natural. The crime numbers go up. And in fact, it's been a tough start for new CCSD Superintendent Jesus Jara, who has seen several gun incidents in the first month on the job. Do we need more security and guardians at the schools? Because I know it's something we're not moving on at the moment. Well, you know, the governor convened a, a task force a, a group of uh, school and uh, law enforcement and safety professionals that came up with a report uh, after having met uh, several times and addressed these issues in particular. And so that was a report that's out you now to the legislature. And I think you're going to see that really addressed in this next legislative session, Jim. I think come, come February, uh, and I know there's already been some bills, uh, bill draft requests that have been submitted <clears throat> for this next legislative session to deal with school security. I think, I mean, if my takeaway from those efforts and that report, uh, and it's been a while since I, since I read it, but the big thing for me was, uh, is, is just this access. If we can, if we can harden our schools by ensuring that we basically have a single access point that we can control, and that the school officials know who's coming in and out of those schools and has control over who's in and out of those schools and can provide probably more safety and protection uh, coming in and out of those schools. I think that's going to be a big, big improvement for us. But of course, that takes funding because you've got to have a way to, uh, you've got to have a way to enclose the school or to at least, you know, fence off areas that would otherwise be accessible. Mark, I had talked to Mayor Goodman a few months ago about how when she and Oscar moved here decades ago, our school district was number one in the country, believe it or not. I know that we've made strides the past few years, but can we ever get to that level again? Oh, I think we can. You know, I was part of that system. I was, I've been, you know, part of the public school system since the time I started in kindergarten all the way through graduation from UNLV, all six of my children graduated from the public school system in, in Las Vegas. And I think the first thing to say is there are you, – you can get a good, high-quality education in Kennedy School District. And um, I think my kids have done it. I think my, my yeah. grandchildren are, get, are, are getting it. Um, I think that there are areas where 
those students don't get as, as, as good access to the educational system um, as perhaps others. I think there are a variety of reasons for that. We gotta, we gotta continue to attack and address all of those. But I will say that my, my own belief on this, Jim, is, is that what continues to drive and improve, uh, education is, um, number one, uh, let's make sure that we're, you know, that we are properly given proper attention to our education system. And I think that we always can do more, uh, but funding is not always the problem. I know that there are some segments within the educational community who just simply say, you know, more money, more money, more money. You got to make sure that it's adequate. You know, when you ask these people, well, okay, if, if, if what we're currently funding isn't enough, what is? Give me a, give me a number. <clears throat> Rarely can you get that number, but there are other school districts that do better than we do with, 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 with as much or less money. So it's not always funding. There are a variety of reasons for it, uh, to be as low as it is. But I have always believed and have always supported policies to give as many choices to parents as possible. You know, this, this gets down to a family decision and education is a family issue. The number one criteria outside of uh, outside of school as to whether or not somebody will, will succeed within school, whether a student will succeed, is the involvement of their family in that educational pursuit. The number one criteria, uh, uh, criterion within uh, the school system is the quality of the teacher. So we got to focus on the quality of the teachers in the classroom and involvement of families and parents uh, outside of the classroom. Those are the two number one driving factors in terms of quality of education. And uh, we got to be promoting as many policies as we can to ensure that we um, heighten both of those uh, those factors. But we also ought to be promoting uh, school choice. Give those parents every opportunity to choose the educational um, avenue that will best fit their child. You know, for many people, that will be public school system. For many people, that will be charter schools, which is part of the public school system. For others, it'll be private schools. For others, it'll be homeschooling. Um, for some, you know, it'll be uh, an Internet-based school. So I would just say focus on quality teachers, focus on parental and family involvement, and school choice. You've had only so much time in office, and not to pat yourself on the back, but as far as your accomplishments, what are you most proud of? Well, first, I've been just absolutely proud to be a, a strong um, and vocal supporter of Brian Sandoval. Um, as I said, every morning he gets up and, and asks what's, uh, what's best for Nevada. And so I, I, you know, I, I, I tell people that it's been the, uh, one of the great privileges and honors of my life to serve with the governor. Um, I stand shoulder to shoulder with him on his initiatives and on his policies, which I think have been tremendously beneficial uh, to Nevadans. And he's been under a lot of fire, and I've tried to support him uh, at times when he was under fire. And I'll be the first one to give him kudos and tell him that he deserves all the credit. And then I, th I would say then after that, uh, you know, my own individual responsibilities have been within tourism, uh, within transportation, within economic development. I've been very proud in terms of what we have done with, uh, with tourism, particularly promoting uh, rural tourism. Uh, I've been all over the uh, all over the world uh, promoting not only tourism for Las Vegas and Reno, which are our big markets, but also for you know for Tonopah and for Elko and for Winnemucca and for Pahrump, and that's been a, a, a big focus of mine. I just finished up a, uh, a a tour up in northern Nevada that I've posted to my social media and other places about just these great sites where you can visit uh, throughout Nevada. So I'm very I'm very proud of my efforts to really try to champion some of these um, unsung heroes of Nevada. Uh, and these uh, these hidden treasures uh, within within tourism, um, and then I've just been very very proud to be part of a an effort part of the board of economic development that has approved and uh, seen the uh, transformation of uh, of Nevada's economy 
and really the diversification of our of our companies. We've been talking about that for decades, and under Governor Sandoval and the uh, Governor's Office of Economic Development, as well as the Board of Economic Development, we've been able to really see that come to fruition to the point that now we have, you know, information technology, high-tech manufacturing, uh, logistics, um, you know, and 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 uh, and, and high uh, high-tech industries that we just didn't see in the past. Come to, come, come to Nevada and come to Las Vegas and, and Reno and then throughout our rural counties. Before I let you go, is there anything on your bucket list, either professionally or personally, you'd like to check off the list in the future? You know what? I've, uh, I've all, I, I was just talking to my, uh, one of my, actually my daughter's, uh, father-in-law. He's a, he's a professor up in, uh, up in Idaho and he's a big outdoor enthusiast and hiker. And, um, I've always wanted to try to hike the Tetons. And I think uh, yeah. maybe coming up this summer we're going to we're, we're going to do that. So that's that's one of my that's one of my bucket lists. I'm going to try to check off. And then uh, the other thing that I would really like to do is to uh, see uh, my 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 last two children happily uh, uh, happily married and, and engaged in a family life that uh, their brothers and sisters have engaged, and that uh, we as our parents have been so so proud about. We've been uh, proud to have you as our lieutenant governor. It'll be uh, you'll be sorely missed, that's for sure. And I and I say that as someone who uh, has watched your career very closely over the years. Well, Jim, thank you for the compliment. You're a good man, and it's always wonderful to be with you. And I appreciate all you're doing for Nevada and keeping us informed and. Uh, and your professionalism as you've uh, demonstrated over the decades, my friend. Mark, I appreciate it. Good luck to you in the future, whatever is on that bucket list. All right, Jim, thanks so much. My next guest is actor Tim Matheson, whose career started very early when he was a child actor, although you probably know him best from the film Animal House. Tim, thanks for joining me, and if you wouldn't mind going back a few years, in fact, this was just on a couple of days ago, it was a rerun of Leave it to Beaver, and I think you were on, I think you were on the final season, if I'm not mistaken. What do you recall about getting that show, you know, the part? You were on a few episodes. You know, that was like, I thought, wow, this my, maybe my career is really starting to take off, you know, because it was like one of the first times I I was in a sort of well-known show, and and um, it, it, <laughs> I, I was thrilled. And I, I, as I recall, I you know, I, and I loved working with Jerry and those guys. And everybody was, you know, they're very professional and so good. So um, it, it just. Um, it was, you know, and but there's never one event in your career you think, oh, now this is the one, this is it, uh, that's going to really set, you know, set me on fire. And 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 then you're back to being unemployed, you're back to auditioning, you're back, you know. So right. It, 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 it's it's so funny that it's never quite what you think it's going to be. And you, of course, you were a hero to many of us uh, when we were kids in the '60s because you were the voice of Johnny Quest. What do you remember about the uh, yeah. about getting that show? Because I've heard Joe Barbera was just a great guy to work with. Barbera was fantastic. You know, sort of a father figure to me. He allowed you know he I did a lot of work over in Hanna Barbera. And it was a part of the business I had never been involved in. So this was a whole new world to me. And I was working with actors like Mel Blanc and Doss Butler and uh, June Foray, all these people who had, who did all, uh, you know, multiple voices in, in, in all these shows. And Don Messick, who was, who was incredibly talented. And these were some of the best actors I think I've ever worked with. Mel Blanc could play a scene with two characters talking to each other. <laughs> without a, missing a beat. And I just right. thought, how do you do that? It's amazing. And then, of course, you do Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. And what were those two like to work with? 
Well, I was really fortunate enough to have started at, a, at such a you know young age that I got to work with people who came out of vaudeville, like Lucy did and Bob Hope and Gleason. But you know, these people, what I learned from them was how hard they work and how prepared they are. They never showed up on the set without bringing a complete performance and having it all figured out and and being able to bring it all again and again and again, take after take after take. And it was a, it was a tremendous lesson to me. Lucy uh, always, you know, she said, always rehearse with your props. And <laughs> especially in, com- in comedy that you really better have everything worked out. And I think it's a testament to, you know, coming out of vaudeville, coming out of theater and, and early movies that they were skilled technicians and very, you know, funny, and also they can improvise with the best of them. Tim, when Animal House came along, I'm not sure if you had done such a broad comedy like that before, but was that one of the hot properties that everyone just wanted to become a part of? I, You know, I guess, I mean, I'd seen that script, and it was a, an avenue for me to get out of these sort of normal parts that I've been playing, straight kind of guy next door and and so I had gotten into improv an improv group in Los Angeles called the Groundlings and yeah uh, in an attempt to you know broaden my range of uh, and, and add a skill set to my uh, tool bag so it was the first comedy I'd ever done but the trick was a lot of people who come out of drama want to you know start mugging and going very broad and and you know you know telegraphing the jokes. And the trick with Landis, John Landis, who directed it, was to keep it very real, very simple. Don't telegraph the jokes. And, uh, you know, so it was um, a quick learning curve for me. Uh, But I must say, John Belushi was very supportive and helpful to me and a a dear friend. Nice. And I I suppose you couldn't have been in better hands in terms of the material when it came to Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny. Oh, my gosh. I mean... And, and Ivan Reitman produced it, you know. I mean, the the, the people yeah. who were involved in that movie and um, who, their, their tremendous talent and skill at, at the comedy genre was uh, was a master class, really. Always great to talk to you, Tim, and, and good luck to you. Tim, thank you very much. Can I also say hi to Mike and Linda Stokey in Las Vegas, too? Absolutely. Thanks, Tim, and thanks to my first guest, Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison. Thanks to all of you who tuned in this morning. I hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.